What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Sam Donks, the weekly NBA show over here at Slab Stocks. I'm your host, Sam. We are in week five of the NBA. Lots to cover today, so let's just jump right into it. Before we get started, we have two breaks going down on Thursday that Slab Stocks Nate is going to be ripping for you. In every live stream, there are people asking how they can get in on the breaks. Well, there's two good ones coming up on Thursday, which are not filled yet as of this recording. Nate's going to be ripping first contenders, first off the line football, which does contain some top and on-card autos. Then he's also going to be ripping Bowman Baseball and Bowman Draft Sapphire, and he'll be dropping some good prospect knowledge throughout that live stream. So be sure to navigate over to slabstocks.com backslash shop if you're interested in joining in on those breaks. Uh, the first segment today came as a request from my guy, Duncan. Uh, never met him in person, but we DM most days about basketball. He's also put a number of good ideas in my head over the past year for other segments. So just wanted to throw some props his way. You know who you are. Uh, by the way, speaking of Duncan, I know these are two cards high atop his wish list. They have been for some time. Also generally kind of hard to find being sold. Uh, it's a Jason Tatum Immaculate RPA out of 99 and a Jaron Jackson Jr. Immaculate RPA out of 13. If you have an inside track on either of these cards, please DM me to let me know. Really would like to help Duncan round out his personal collection. So getting into that segment, we're taking a look at two young players who compare pretty favorably in a lot of different ways. We're taking a look at their averages over the past two seasons, so the full season from last year and then whatever portions they've played in this young season. Player A has played 72 games in that time frame. Player B has played 85 games. Player A, per game, 21.2 points. Good start. Not a prolific three-point shooter, sitting at 33% from downtown on 2.7 three-point attempts per game. League average two shooting at 56%. Then also gets to the line a decent amount of times, averaging 4.7 trips to the charity strike per game and converting those attempts at a 78% clip. Pretty good stuff all around outside of a little bit of lackluster three-point shooting. Player B scoring just a smidge less, 19.5 points per game. Not prolific by any stretch, but a respectable 35% percentage on nearly four attempts per game. Uh, just above, above league average shooting, a uh, true shooting at 57.6%, and getting to the line just a bit more than player A with 5.2 free throw attempts per game and converting at just above 80%. Good stuff. Uh, let's take a look at some of the other counting stats. Player A is averaging 7.3 assists per game in his 72 games, and he has a healthy chunk of responsibility in his team's scoring with an assist percentage of 35.6%. So that just means that when he's on the court, he's assisting over a third of his teammates' field goals. Also, he's averaging 3.7 rebounds per game. Player B, uh, less impressive, 4.2 assists per game with an 18.2% assist percentage, although... I might add he's been put into a much different role on his team this year and is averaging 6.4 assists per game so far and an assist percentage of 32.4%. That's through 15 games this season. So his two-year averages don't really paint a super accurate picture of what he's doing today due to the aforementioned role change. Uh, he's also averaging 4.3 rebounds in that time frame. Usage percentage for both players are similar. 26.3% usage for player A, 
24.1% for player B. Some of the other catch-all metrics favor player B a little bit more. Box plus minus for player A is 0.5. Player B, 1.9. League average is, is 0, 0.0, so both are above average. Value over replacement player also favors player B a bit, 1.4 compared to player B's 2.9. And then if we look at offensive win shares, we are looking at 2.7 for player A and 4.4 for player B. So ranking within the top 75 and the top 50 players in the league, respectively, by offensive win shares. So who are these mystery players? Maybe some of you have already figured that out already. They are... John Morant as player A and Shea Gilgis Alexander as player B. Jaw is the 21-year-old second-year point guard for the Memphis Grizzlies. Shea, the 22-year-old third-year point guard for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Obviously played shooting guard last year next to Chris Paul and was even involved regularly in three-guard lineups. This year, he's essentially been handling point guard duties. So, both good young players, both comparing favorably as point guards with very high ceilings and very exciting futures. So let's take a look at the charts and we'll see a bit of a different story. And we're looking at their PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie cards as our point of comparison. Both have trended downward over the past three weeks on pretty regular sales right along the way. 22 in total. John Morant is down 26%. Uh, he was out with a bum ankle for eight games, but he has played three games since his return. Last one being a 44.9 assist performance in their loss against the San Antonio Spurs. The Grizzlies are in the midst of a string of canceled games due to COVID. On the same chart, we can see kind of a just a little bloop of an orangish line towards the bottom of the chart. And that represents the Shea Gilgis Alexander Prism Silver PSA 10 sales over the same span of time. Eight of those sales coming on January 10th following his excellent 31.6 rebound seven assist performance in a win over the Brooklyn Nets. Other than that, just six other sales in the past three weeks. And while his line is clearly flatter, it also represents a 10% drop in value over the past three weeks. So while their box scores generally compare rather favorably, what's with the huge discrepancy in the card market value? I just think this presents a rather interesting case study into what drives market demand. And to be totally honest, I don't know if this says more about how people perceive Ja Morant versus how they perceive Shai Gilgis Alexander. Are people too high on Ja? Are they too low on Shea? Is it a combination of the, of the two? I have no clue, but I think there are a number of factors involved. Uh, these are all just my theories, and there are probably other factors that I haven't thought of. But for starters... John Morant was the second overall pick in last year's draft, meaning that he starts with a fairly sizable lead in initial perception, and Shea was drafted 11th overall in the 2018 NBA draft. Next, John Morant has a very explosive playing style, one that really translates into highlights on Twitter and on Instagram very easily. And while he's putting up similar numbers, Shea's on-court product really is stylistically very different. Uh, he's extremely athletic, but he doesn't exactly explode past people like Ja does. Instead, he runs a very smooth game, you know, sort of a, a tactician getting to the open spots that plays well in the actual on-court product, but in highlights, it's just not as dynamic. Another point in Ja's favor is that he's still playing for the same team that drafted him, meaning that his rookie card shows him in the correct jersey. And Shea was obviously traded once already. He was the headliner in the Paul George swap, so his rookie cards show him in a Clippers jersey. 
Uh, Jaw is also somewhat surrounded by good young talent, or at least there appears to be a number of high ceilings on the roster around him, like Jaron Jackson Jr., Brandon Clark. Down in Oklahoma City, meanwhile, there are good young players, Darius Baisley, Lugens Dort, Hamadou Diallo, but clearly we're not talking about the same sorts of ceilings or public perception as their counterparts up in Memphis. And my last theory on the discrepancy is that last year's card market explosion, which brought a ton of value to investors and brought who knows how many people back into the card market, it corresponded with John Morant's rookie season. As his hype uh, built, being one of the newest young stars in the league, so also the overall card market hype was building, while SGA came out the year before the huge explosion. Certainly, there was a lot of excitement in the card market in 2018 also, particularly due to Luka Doncic and Trey Young, but it just wasn't quite on the same level as this past year. I should also say, in general, I think John Morant's ceiling is probably higher, but I wouldn't say it's that much higher to warrant nearly four times market prices. Now, these are both of them, both of them by far two of my favorite young guards to watch in the entire league. And I'm sure that's true also for a lot of you. And I think they'll both be considered two of the top point guards in the Western Conference in just a few years. But right now, they're just clearly being thought of on very different levels. So I don't know what to make of all of this other than I just think that their on-court performance and their card market performance are telling two very different stories. And I think eventually those things will start to level out somewhere. I don't know where that will happen, but I think it eventually does happen. Uh, let's take a look next at the new look Brooklyn Nets. Of course, nearly two weeks ago, the league experienced a power shift when Houston shipped, shipped off James Harden to Brooklyn in a 14 blockbuster deal. Now that we're a few weeks out, we can look and see how the market reacted to the news. To gauge their respective markets, I chose the most basic mainstream rookies of each. Kevin Durant's 2007 tops PSA 10 rookie, the white version, not, the, uh, not a chrome one either. Uh, then Kyrie Irving's 2012 Prism Base PSA 10 rookie. And lastly, James Harden's 2009 Tops PSA 9 rookie. I went with PSA 9 simply because there's been like three 10s sold in that time frame and I needed to make a chart. So uh, it's clearly not an accurate reflection of his overall price comparatively to the other two, but we can still see a pattern and a good amount of demand in that particular marketplace. All told, since the day before the trade went down, this particular KD rookie is up 23% on the back of 36 sales. Kyrie is down 19% on eight sales. And James Harden is up 60% on 40 sales. Okay, so obviously at least on the offensive end, this is clearly one of the best teams in the entire league. All three of these players are very difficult to limit offensively under normal circumstances. And next to one another, that presents an entirely different problem. They are not without their question marks, and I don't want to get too much into that since I believe it's been covered ad nauseum by every outlet. But certainly their on-court fit still has some things to be worked out. You know, Thus far, Harden has been the one trying to adapt his game the most. I wouldn't count on that lasting through to the end of the season, nor do I think that should last. Uh, for instance, he only attempted eight shots in the win against Miami a few days ago. It's pretty obvious that he's just trying to prove that everything doesn't have to revolve around him and he can be a team first player, which is a reversal from his time in Houston. And that's fine. But he is a top five player in the league, along with Kevin Durant, and really needs to be filling a more primary role on offense. 
Uh, Kevin Durant has been awesome, should continue to be awesome, provided the, you know, these astronomical minutes that he's playing don't lead to a re-aggravation of the Achilles. I don't know how likely that type of re-injury is. And then there's Kyrie Irving, who is and will continue to be the big question mark on this team. Uh, he should definitely take the third possession in this big three, but through three games, that just hasn't happened at all. It's super young in their marriage, obviously, and there's going to be some bumps along the way, like the back-to-back -back losses against the Cavs. Could certainly get much cleaner as the season goes on. Could also be added internal contention as the season goes on. I don't know what's going to happen, obviously, but here's what I'll say. Uh, we are seeing an uptick in all of these markets outside of Kyrie Irving, mostly due, I assume, to the assumption that these guys will be winning the championship or at least appearing in the NBA Finals. Of course, we see time and again that if a guy wins MVP, most of the market growth occurred along the way to the award. When a team wins a championship, most of the market growth occurs on the way with the anticipation of a championship. I always like to try to take a long-term view with players since I, I really don't like the idea of people losing money on bad investments. My concern is that two of these players are just not very well liked by the public. You know, we already see that with Kyrie Irving's market. Only eight sales during the exciting two-week stretch after one of the biggest trades we've ever seen. If he can only manage eight sales these past two weeks, what are we going to expect to happen when people are entering massive sell-offs to capitalize on a finals appearance? You know, right now, there are tons of this exact Kyrie Irving card available on best offers on eBay, and no one's even sniffing them. Uh, this is the problem that we see when a player just doesn't really have a fan base. Uh, you know, Greed it can, uh, can't completely drive a player's market. There also has to be love, some sort of love somewhere in the world. Uh, who's going to be the end investor on these guys? These are some of the questions that I'm asking, and there just aren't a whole ton of people that love Kyrie Irving. You know, for that matter, there aren't a whole ton of people who love James Harden either. And if these players' markets are being driven exclusively by greed, I do worry about how many people will be left with quite a bit of money lost. And we still see guys like Kobe trending upward, Michael Jordan trending upward. We'll see that with Kevin Durant in the long term because he's just so prolific as a player. But how many people are thinking of James Harden or Kyrie Irving as their long-term personal collection pieces? And probably not a whole ton of people. Uh, this is all just my feelings on the situation. And in the short term, I guess it really just probably doesn't matter a whole ton. And I could be very long, very wrong, uh, but these are just my thoughts. The guy is welcome to his own thoughts, is he not? Last topic before we get to our starting five. You might have seen some of the circus that went on the other night on NBA on TNT when Shaq really kind of went after Donovan Mitchell during in an interview in a way that Mitchell clearly didn't appreciate. Uh, it was pretty awkward all around, I would say. But overall, I think the whole surrounding discussion was fairly accurate. And Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith said a few things, which I wanted to share with you here in case you missed it. This is basically how I view players. And you know, they put it into very clear, concise terms, which I think are good rules to bear in mind as you're targeting which players to buy. First, Chuck said, a superstar is a guy who can win the game multiple ways. A lot of guys who are great offensive players, but a superstar is a guy who can win a game if he's having a bad shooting night. He can get a lot of rebounds or he can play defense. And then a little, better, uh, a little bit later in the discussion, Kenny the Jet gave his thoughts. He said, I always say that, you know my rule of being a superstar. There's five or six ways to affect the game. Scoring, rebounding, and assists, defense, leadership, pace of game. Superstars lead it in three to four categories every single night. 
three or four of those six categories, all-stars, two. Now, if you've watched any of my videos before, you know I generally like to think about the fuller picture of a player rather than something, you know, just like raw scoring or, you know, even raw scoring plus rebounding. There's just so much more involved in the game of basketball and the guys who will ascend to that upper echelon historically and just generally in the public's eye are going to be those guys that can win multiple ways. You know, right now we have LeBron. Kawhi, James Harden, Giannis, Anthony Davis, Luka, Jokic, Embiid, uh, Steph, obviously, Damian Lillard, probably a few others that I'm not thinking of that I could throw into that category, where if something's not clicking for them, you know, if their shot's not falling or whatever, they're still going to have so many other positive attributes that they'll still be a big net positive on the game. And that's why they're all top 10 players. The younger guys, as they're coming up, we don't care as much if they're more one-dimensional because they're not held to that same standard. But there will come a time when the shine of being the new guy starts to wear off. And by that time, where are they going to stand? You know, a lot of it will have to do with what the NBA on TNT guys were talking about. So I really think that when you're prospecting young guys, figure out who can do more than just score. See if they're improving in some of those other categories, and that's who you should be investing in, at least as far as long-term plays go. Last, let's take a look at this week's starting five. We're focusing on five guys who are still starting their careers, either in their first or second, or even in their third years. First up, speaking of one-dimensional players, Colin Sexton. Uh, this is now a pro Colin Sexton NBA card market show, maybe the first of its kind, I might say. Uh, what he did against the Nets this past week was just extraordinary. Now, there are only a few guys in the league headstrong enough to go against a team like this Nets team and not just pretend that they believe they're the best player on the court, but actually believe it and then go out and dump 42 points and win the game. I can really get behind that. Now, clearly, he's not going to play like that every single night. For instance, last night, he shot just 37% from the field and had 13 points in a blowout loss to the Celtics. But you know what? As I look down the Eastern Conference standings, 76ers, Bucks, Celtics, Pacers, Nets, they're all locks for the playoffs. Uh, the Heat are sitting in 13th currently, but they'll likely write the ship and get in as well. Then there's the Hawks, who should get in. They're in the eighth spot right now. Then we have the Cavs, Knicks, Raptors, Magic, I don't think it's out of the question that the Raptors might be trading away Kyle Lowry and maybe some other pieces this year. They just don't look quite right. So I wouldn't be terribly surprised if they missed the playoffs. Uh, then the Magic, I wouldn't bet on them sneaking in. And I'm also probably not betting on the Knicks at this juncture, which leaves me at least with looking at the Cavs as a playoff team, perhaps the eighth seed. And if they were a playoff team, it would be on the back of Colin Sexton making no bones about it. He only wants to score, and that's it. I'm all the way here for that. Long term, still obviously a big question if he can do anything else. But right now, his stock is shooting straight up on some electric scoring. Next up. Former teammate Kevin Porter Jr. I say former teammate because he was traded to the Rockets recently for essentially nothing. A top 55 protected second round pick, which will clearly not convey unless the Rockets magically become the top five seed in the NBA. Uh, just a super disappointing turn for the young player's career. At USC in college, he had been suspended indefinitely at one point for some personal conduct issues. This offseason, there were some allegations against him. Then he was basically kept away from the team for several weeks for reason that's 
for reasons that the team really wasn't discussing very much. And then upon his return, he had an outburst against team officials for moving his locker. And I think I saw that he was throwing food around. And then he was told to clean out his locker and that he was off the team. Just really, really, really crappy stuff all around. Now, I've been super high on KPJ because of what he's done on the court. And, and it has been really exciting. The things he's done, the flashes of potential he's shown. But all of the rest of this is just really not good. Uh, he's going now to Houston, and, and hopefully he can get a fresh start, although I wouldn't expect him to play anytime soon or maybe even much of this year at all. You know, there are a ton of wing players ahead of him in the pecking order right now in Houston. But the big goal for this team is just to help him get his life squared away. So stock is going to be down right now and, and huge question marks looming, which we might not find out the answers to until next season at the earliest. So pretty disappointing all around. Next up, our first repeat starter, Tyrese Halliburton. I just can't say enough good things about this guy. He's absolutely a rookie that just knows how to play, and he affects the game in so many different ways. He plays in a way that kind of reminds me of a Luka Doncic type of playing style, where it's it's not overwhelming speed or athleticism that it gets him open. It's all the offbeat fakes and pivots and tricks. He's always making the right choices, whether he's passing or shooting or cutting. I just love him. I love watching the contrast between him and De'Aaron Fox on the court. Just extremely enjoyable viewing stock ticking up. Next up, another rookie guard living across the country up in the Big Apple with a 25th pick in this year's draft, Emmanuel Quickly. He had by far his best performance of his career last night. 31 points, four assists, three rebounds in only 24 minutes, and that was in a loss against the Portland Trailblazers. We shouldn't overreact to that one performance. He has scored in single digits seven times this year. He's only averaging 11 points per game, but he does show some good rapport with the other two players who play the most minutes in the league, those guys being R.J. Barrett and Julius Randle. In their 66 minutes playing alongside Emmanuel quickly, they're a plus 21.9 in net rating. So obviously that's really good stuff. Going to be a bit before Tom Thibodeau starts trusting him with more minutes. Alfred Payton is currently the start starter, but we know that Knicks fans have been starred for a point guard for quite some time, and Emmanuel quickly looks like he could be a good enough player to start getting more attention as the season progresses. And then lastly, sticking in New York, Nick Claxton is going to be having a huge role to play whenever he returns from knee injury. You know, Reggie Perry, he has been getting a, a lot of burn ever since the James Harden trade as the Nets depth is suddenly very shallow, especially in the big man rotation. But once Nick Claxton is back, I absolutely expect him to carve out a big role on this team. And I also expect the big three to be going out of their way to give him praise because that's just what usually happens in this sort of this type of situation. So his stock is trending up in anticipation that his return will really help things out in Brooklyn. Okay, that's all I have for you today. As always, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to watch my video. I do not take that for granted, so thank you very much. I'm very grateful for it. Uh, as always, we'll see you next week. Thanks for watching.